You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Happy New Year! We hope you've had a lovely break and you're not finding January too grey and dreary. To cheer you up, we've put together what I think might be one of our best episodes with some thought-provoking interviews for you to listen to. This is episode 34 of Sprogcast on maternal request for caesarean. I'm Karen Hall and he's Mark Harris. Hello! Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsors Pinter and Martin an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. And I just quickly want to mention our Sprogcast discount code. So if you are buying from Pinter oh, yeah. Martin, free delivery and 10% off with S-P-R-O-G-C-A-S-T at the checkout. Oh, use that code. This episode's interviews are with Maria Booker from Birthrights and Dr. Susan Bewley, Professor of Women's Health at King's College London. And we have a report from the third annual Birth Trauma Conference. Hey, it's cram packed today, Karen. We better keep our chats to the minimum. And how are you, Karen? I am doing fine. I'm taking a few days off with Pete. Um, I have been working today, but we're going into London tomorrow um, to do a thing called the Hollow Body, which is you have an app and it I don't really know what happens. I think it's like a guided walk or something. Um, and we've got a spa day on Wednesday. I thought you said you were going to have a couple of days off from Pete. No, with Pete. Oh, phew. I went phew. No, no, I, I like days off with Pete, much better than days uh, off from Pete. Yeah, me and my wife were given a spa day present as well. We've not, not cashed it in yet. Nice. So I've got our, our Maternity Voices Partnership meetings on Monday. So right. I always quite look forward to that. And um, well, Maternity Voices, what, what's that all about? Well, you know an MSLC. Oh, yeah, the token involvement of users i would not describe reading maternity voices partnership as a token involvement we've got a very engaged group and we meet four times a year with the maternity department but we talk to them a lot in between that and we've been um partnership with them in driving quite a few changes forward i think it's reading maternity voices is a is a really really good one so it's not just a box that the head of midwifery gets to tick no i don't think it is i'm teasing well i'm not having it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's headed up by Lisa Ramsey. So I'll set her on you if you don't shut oh, up. No, I don't. No, no, don't. She's she's cool. I mean, I like Lisa a lot. T- tell me then one one thing that you felt feel that the uh, that body has been instrumental in seeing change. Um, a, a dedicated home birth team. Oh bloody hell! That's, that's big. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Hands up. Thank that's you. Great. It'll be interesting to see the data from the audit you do. Yes, it's been running since last April, so we should have a decent amount of data soon. Um, but certainly at the moment, anyone who asks for a home birth can be part of or can be supported by um, a dedicated team, which means they get full continuity of care as well. So Woo! it's really, really, really good. And we're so proud of that. Uh, the hospital's done an amazing job. A year's worth of data from that would be worth uh, having an interview about. Yeah, it might well be. So. Yeah, actually, so this is, would be a good point, actually, to introduce Louise Perkins, who um, is going to give us uh, a little report from the 
uh, birth trauma conference that she went to. And Louise is a consultant midwife at Royal Bucks. Come on, let's get her on. Yes, so my name is Louise Perkins and I'm a consultant midwife at the Royal Berkshire uh, and my role is predominantly around public health and normality and I also have a big focus on perinatal mental health which was what took me to the conference and uh, why I thought it was really important to be there. Okay, so you were at the third annual birth trauma conference, is that the correct? Yes. And how was it? It was a fantastic day, real mix of different speakers and covered trauma around birth in a really broad and inclusive way from everything from uh, birth trauma as applied to women, but also uh, touching on the impact of birth trauma uh, and how midwives experience that, uh, the impact of midwives own trauma on how they offer care to women and the impact of trauma on fathers as well. I think when you reflect on a conference like this, you have to just take away the uh, powerful stories that the service users themselves bring. Uh, we had Laura Wood and Catherine Grant speak to us about their experience. Uh, and particularly the messages that came out from them was the impact that it's had on um, their beginning of motherhood, um, but also how we think about organising care that is trauma-focused, and that was a big take-home message for me, certainly. Well, I think one of the things that we were reflecting on was that we are getting better at asking women every time we see them as midwives about uh, how they're feeling in terms of their mental health. But Actually, one of the things that we probably don't still uh, take enough consideration of is asking women about previous life traumas and how that's impacting them, how they've coped with really big disruptive life events before and how actually they need to potentially start thinking about those coping techniques that they've learnt in previous life events and how they apply them to that that really disruptive turning your life upside down time around have, having a baby. Now that is interesting because it also then impacts on the continuity of care discussion, doesn't it? Because if every different midwife who meets a woman asks her about previous trauma, that could be quite a negative experience. Yes, absolutely, indeed. Um, But I think there's a conversation to be had around enabling women to be prepared uh, and to think, actually, we know that women who've suffered previous traumatic events, whatever that might be in childhood or or in adulthood of, of various traumatic natures have a five times higher likelihood of developing PTSD after birth. So it's really important that as care care providers that we bear in mind not just what's happening around the woman's pregnancy and birth but also what are all the things that she's carrying with her into that pregnancy and that we're mindful of that. Was there anything else you took away from it? Well I think one of the things that helpfully was a thread running through the whole day was how careful we have to be when we talk about birth trauma that we're not just thinking in terms of births that are on paper obstetrically complicated births or things where things have um, objectively been complicated but how birth trauma is very much in the eye of the beholder uh, and that actually women can have two exactly parallel experiences and one will experience severe trauma from it and the other won't. Uh, And that's again about all that baggage that we carry with us through into pregnancy and and birth. Uh, And I think it's really important that uh, we keep hold of this when we talk about birth trauma and particularly as uh, people like myself when we're thinking about services to support women is that we need to make sure that we have ways of identifying women that are Uh, led by women women themselves rather than simply uh, a way of trying to identify women who might suffer birth trauma based on what kind of birth they had because the reality is that birth trauma for the majority of women doesn't come from what kind of birth that they had but how they felt during that birth. 
Yeah, over and over again. That's what comes back to us when we listen to women. Thank you. Thank you very much, Louise, for talking to this podcast. So that actually leads us nicely into this article that you linked on our Facebook page from the Australian Journal of Women and Birth, which it's the Journal of the Australian College of Midwives. um, And the article is called Postnatal Post-Traumatic Stress and Integrative Review. So it's a literature review um, looking at um, post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress symptoms following birth um, and their effects on mental health. What was it that you found interesting about this? Uh, well, first of all, it's an area of interest for me, particularly at the moment, because me um, and a couple of our colleagues, Alex Heath and clinical psychologist Mia Scotland, are running uh, what we call three-step rewind technique um, trainings. Uh, and they've had a certain amount of criticism from full-time therapists who who kind of believe that it's too serious an area to train people in the technique for two days. So I'm reading a lot around the area and I was particularly struck with the references to this article because there was quite a lot of uh, reference material. Um, Although the conclusions of this kind of review are kind of obvious. Postnatal post-traumatic stress symptoms disorder have been shown to neg- negatively impact the lives of childbearing women. Really? <laughs> that surprises me. Well, yeah, but th- there's more discussion of it than that. Uh, yeah, there is. And further investigation into the methods and models for identifying women at risk of developing postnatal post-traumatic stress following childbirth is required in order to improve the outcomes for this population of women. And, you know, having been reading about this subject in the context of birth for quite a while, there really isn't an awful lot written uh, about it. There isn't, there hasn't been an awful lot of investigation uh, in the impact of postnatal PTSD type symptoms in women that have experienced uh, inverted commas birth trauma. So uh, I, I just think, you know, in the light of the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths, Um, which pointed to mental health issues being a key issue in the context of women dying post-birth. In the context of better birth that speaks about postnatal care generally being pretty poor, um, it's it's an area that I think demands our attention. Yeah, and in the context of um, NCT's Hidden Half campaign, because the fact that half of, of women suffering from post- postnatal depression don't even get a diagnosis is just appalling. Yeah. And the diagnosis of PTSD itself is, is very difficult to acquire. Um, and then having, having got the label or the diagnosis, whatever you want to call it, then to be referred to appropriate treatment can take ages. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a big subject, exactly as you've said, um, with reference to yours and Mia's training that you're doing. I think that we'll try and do birth uh, trauma or postnatal depression as our next episode subject. I'm trying to get Catherine Grant, who spoke at the birth trauma conference, um, to give us an interview. Yep. So we'll, we'll, shall we just um, put a pin in this? Yeah, we can. Part of the challenge is this, is, is that, you know, women, in my opinion, are living inside the experience of the story, you know, they're left with, uh, after having given birth this 
leads in a little bit to the discussion topic for today, which is maternal request for caesarean. Um, we've got two interviews and the second one up, Dr. Susan Bewley, does actually reference um, the that whole um, psychosocial aspect of um, people's attitude to birth and how mm. I, I think what she was getting at, and this might be another subject for another time, is that fear of birth could actually be um, a symptom of fear of like the life transition of parenthood as a whole in society that isn't particularly supportive of, of parents, which I think is fascinating. I'd certainly like to put that hypothesis out there and see if there's anyone who wants to talk to us about it. What the the part of what's going on in the context of fear of birth is actually fear of parenthood. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting. Let's let that one on um, um, steep for a little. Yeah. And come back to it. We've got Maria Booker coming up now from Birthright. Hi, I'm Maria Booker and I'm the Programmes Director for the charity Birthright. And Birthright aims to improve um, maternity care with a focus on human rights. Hi, Maria. Thanks for talking to us today. So we're, we're specifically looking at the issue of um, caesarean birth by maternal request, which seems to be quite a hot topic yes absolutely yes um this is um something birthrights has been working on for a few months now we've been running a campaign about maternal request cesarean and that really came about uh through inquiries into our advice line and um, we were finding that this was the most common reason that women had for getting in touch with our advice line and um, so it was something that we wanted to to look into a bit more and what we found from looking at, at people's experience was that um, as a group, these you know these women were not being treated with the dignity and respect that all um, pregnant women deserve. Um, and that a lot of these women were being told right from the outset that maternal request cesarean wasn't an option and that the trust wouldn't offer it. Or were being told that you, the decision would be made very late on in their pregnancy, which just created a lot of anxiety as well. So that's why we've been doing some work on this recently. Right, so this is women being faced with a blanket policy of, no, we don't do this, don't even ask. Yes, that's right, that's right. Or, or the trust not being very transparent about uh, what their policy is. You know, women in this situation uh, find themselves in quite a difficult position because trusts don't very often advertise what their policy is on um maternal request cesarean. In fact, in some ways, the trust that, that white women from the outset, at, at least it's transparent and clear, although, you know, we don't agree with that policy at all. And we'll talk about that later. But, you know, often women find that, you know, they go along to the hospital and, you know, they, they're all armed to have this conversation about, you know, the choice that they've come to and the decision they want to make. Um, and then they're told that that's, that's not possible. And, you know, they're left in a situation where, where where do you go from here? Do you try and uh, start again with a different hospital, but you don't know whether you're going to get the same results or, you know, how do you find out who who would be more sympathetic? And, um, you know, it's just a very difficult position for women to find themselves in. Can we um, talk about the reasons why women make this decision? Well, what we found from our advice line is that... Um, Although there are, you know, women who look at the evidence and, and make a very kind of rational decision that that's the, the mode of birth they want, we've actually found that that they're in the minority and that 
out, out of the women who've contacted our advice line, um, over 50% have either had a previous birth trauma or have some pre-existing health condition that might not meet the threshold of needing a cesarean, but nevertheless, they are worried is going to be impacted by a vaginal birth. Um, and then after that, there's, you know, the tocophobia, women who are, are really just very scared about vaginal birth. Um, and then there's a sort of smaller category, again, of women who have had some other trauma in their past. Maybe they've had, you know, some sexual assault or rape or something like that in their past. And, you know, they find the idea of vaginal birth very difficult. It's interesting when you talk to, um, you know, our trustees about this and things. And it's, we find this with all birth choices that, and, and obviously birth rights is about supporting choices right across the spectrum, you know. We want to support women who want to make all sorts of choices from home birth, free birthing, right through to elective cesarean. And um, women generally do have reasons for, for the choice they make. It might not be the reasons that, you know, the rationale that the clinician on the opposite side of the table would would use or would make. But they, they do generally have their own reasons. And it might not be the clinical, you know, risks and reasons, but they generally bring their own evidence base and their own reasons to the table. So the people I've spoken to um, who don't support this point of view, that, that women should be able to make this choice for themselves, um, tend to be arguing that it's not okay to expect a clinician to perform surgery that, in their view, isn't necessary. Yes, and I, I think, you know, this isn't about coercing individual doctors to, to do something that they feel that is wrong. And, and certainly the NICE guidelines, which states that women should be um, given a maternal request cesarean if they continue to want one after appropriate counselling, etc. Also states that individual obstetricians can't be made to um, perform the surgery, but if they if they don't want to do it, they should refer to a colleague who is willing to carry it out. There are people who support this choice. There are lots of doctors who feel that, um, particularly if a woman already feels that that a vaginal birth isn't an acceptable option for her it, it's quite likely that she she's not in the right kind of headspace for, for that to go well you know the, the chances of an emergency cesarean probably you know increase in those sorts of cases and I think there are um you know plenty of doctors who who support that choice and um therefore it's just a matter of coming to an arrangement of you know who does and who doesn't and making sure that those women are referred to people who are willing to carry it out. I don't, I don't think anybody needs to be coerced into, into performing surgery that they don't want to do. When One of the things that changed or, or influenced my thinking on this was um, speaking to Claire Harbottle when we did the episode in Leeds. And she said that she finds, and obviously this is anecdote rather than research, but she finds that where women are supported in the choice, there's a good chance that with, um, you know, with good support, with continuity of care, that she actually will go on to um, have a vaginal birth anyway because she doesn't feel backed into a corner. I think that's exactly right. I mean, um, Simon Meaton, one of our trustees, has written a blog on our website about exactly this, this, his experience of running clinics at the Liverpool Women's Hospital. And he said that he always started those clinics by saying, you know, if uh, maternal request cesarean is what you want, we will we will give it to you and we'll put the date in and you know you can definitely have it and then you know it's human nature isn't it that opens up the conversation you know women are prepared to you know relax and to consider 
other options and what might be um, an acceptable birth plan, you know, maybe a lower threshold for cesarean going down the vaginal birth route. But if you tell women, no, that's definitely not an option, you're just you just create an antagonistic starting point, don't you? It's not it's not um, conducive to having a, a good conversation with women about why why they think that and what's driving that decision and whether support and help can be offered. Mm. And increasing the anxiety that's led towards the decision in the first place. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we found that this campaign has been really controversial um, in a way that other, you know, other choices that we supported haven't been. But actually, it's the same thing driving the decisions. It's about women wanting to have autonomy over their own bodies and to to make the choice that is right for them. And, you know, if you've had a previous traumatic birth, there's, there's generally kind of two routes you go down, isn't there? There's the kind of home birth, no intervention, you know, as, as little contact with kind of medical professionals as possible or, or there's the kind of the other the other route in terms of having control over the the mode and the time of birth and going down for an elective cesarean route but but they're driven by the same you know need to have some control and to to feel that they're going to be safe and ethically to me it's, it seems identical to talk about supporting women to be empowered to make those choices and be supported to make those choices Whereas I think the opposite argument is that ethically it it just simply isn't okay to do surgery where surgery isn't necessary. It's this necessary thing, isn't it? Yeah. I, I think the thing is, it's about who whose kind of view counts. And, you know, NICE, when they, they reviewed the guidance sort of six years ago, looked at all the evidence and, um, you know, they made the recommendation that, that hospitals should offer this. You know, of course, women need to be given all the evidence and need to... Um, ensure they can make an informed decision um, but if, if they've really you know understood what the risks are of a, a you know maternal request cesarean and, and they've considered their personal circumstances and and made a, an informed choice then you know nice is saying that that should be offered so you know the question is really why why trusts feel that they have better evidence or or other reasons sort of not to follow that um, and if if they if they do feel they have better evidence or, or a specific set of circumstances which justifies why they are going against those conditions and they need to be transparent about that. Do you know what drives certain hospitals to choose not to follow the NICE guidelines? That's a really interesting question I think. You know we've we've heard some different theories. You know, for example um, some hospitals have said it's about theatre space and making sure that uh, theatres are available for emergency cesareans when needed. There has been some mention of cost and you know ccgs may be driving that decision but we've also you know done an foi request to ccgs to see whether there's any truth in that and you know from early indications i think it's that that's true in in some cases but only a very small minority surely there would have to be a lot of these going on for cost to become an issue well well, i think cost is a bit of a red herring because actually trusts get paid the same for a cesarean as they do for a vaginal birth some hospitals would argue that they actually cost them more but there's lots of ways you can cost things and, uh, you know, certainly talking to uh, cesarean campaigners such as Pauline Hull, they've, you know, I know Pauline told me recently that the cost of cancelling a woman out of a cesarean, if you like, um, is about £1,000. So, you know, there's different ways you can cost things, but certainly what hospitals are 
are paid is is the same. I think most hospitals would give the reason that they're, that they're trying to do the best thing for women, that they feel that um, it's better for women to have um, a vaginal birth. But, I, you know, I think there's just a misguided kind of instinct in that, that, that other people know better than the women themselves about yeah. what's right for them. Yeah. Sort of patrician decision that we know yeah. best, dear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trusts obviously are under pressure, I think, to, to reduce their cesarean rate. But all this is taking place in the context of a culture that doesn't necessarily make vaginal birth, you know, easy or, um, you know, provides the optimal environment for, for vaginal birth. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the birth rights as an organisation feels that trusts need to be focusing on reducing cesareans for women who don't want one and there are plenty of women who end up having one who don't want one um, and not penalizing women who have made a you know a conscious choice to opt for maternal request cesarean so do you want to um, tell us about your current campaigning we started out this campaign by kind of writing to to hospitals that um that have this policy of writing to women right at the outset of their pregnancy when they book into care and saying that they don't offer maternal request cesareans and um you know we've had a bit of mixed success with that but but we really feel that this is uh, contrary to human rights law it doesn't it's a blanket policy it doesn't take into account women's individual circumstances and all trusts have a, an obligation under human rights law to uh, look at any individual woman's request and to make sure that they've looked at the the risks and also the benefits and that they've balanced all those factors and can show that there are good reasons for refusing any individual request and that the impact on that individual is not disproportionate. We are actually preparing to write a pre-action letter to um, Oxford University Hospitals, which has one of the most uh, kind of strict policies on this. Um, Oxford are very clear that they refer any women, women asking for this to another trust um, so we're preparing a pre-action letter and um, we'll be saying more about that shortly but if there's anybody listening to this who has experience of that policy at um, OUH or um, has worked for trusts around or has had experience of going to other trusts in the surrounding area because of that policy um, please do get in touch with us at Birthrights and our addresses info at birthrights.org.uk you can find all the information on our website as well well we've we've tried to open up the conversation with OUH um, but we haven't found that they've been very receptive to listening so this this is basically um, the forerunner to a, a you know a proper legal challenge a judicial review of this policy that's going to be interesting yeah the aim is not really to take people to court the idea is to get people to think about how they treat pregnant women and that they give them the respect and dignity that they they deserve yeah so we're really looking to talk to anybody who's been affected by that policy but also if if anybody would like any advice if anybody um feels that they're not being listened to you can always write to us as well you can get in touch with us um, by email on that info at address um, to support women and also healthcare professionals who, who don't feel that women's human rights are being respected Right. Thank you. That's really great. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you. And you. Bye. Okay. Bye. What about if they sent a letter out saying they didn't do appendectomy on request? Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you send that letter? 
Well, well you wouldn't, but it isn't, aren't the principles similar? But if somebody approached them and said, I, I want you to take my appendix out, you wouldn't just go, no, don't be ridiculous, go away. You'd, you'd say, hmm, it seems like you might have some issues. Shall we talk about them? Let's get you the right sort of support. If someone said, uh, I want my appendix out, um, the doctors would say, yeah, well, let's have a talk about it. And at the end of it all, the person said, well, I'm not willing to discuss with you why I want my appendix out. But take my word on it. If you don't take it out, I'll be emotionally affected for the rest of my life. Should they then take his appendix out? No, they should continue to explore what support options that person needs. But there's certainly no need. But what's the difference in terms of principle? Because if, if what we, if when we talk about now, don't get me wrong, this isn't my position. I'm I'm advocating a devil's advocate position. If on one hand we say the birth is a physiological process, it's not a pathology, it's not a disease, and unless there's a deviation from the normal inverted commas where a pathology emerges, there isn't a pathology here needs needs treating. So the idea of a cesarean section on on request, I can understand why a medic would find that troubling. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. And, 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 and it does sound counterintuitive that those of us in the birth world are actually saying, no, a woman should be able to request it and have it if she wants to. Major abdominal surgery. I think there needs to be a conversation. I was very persuaded by Dr. Susan Bewley, who you'll hear in a minute, um, saying that you don't start a conversation with no. You start the conversation where the woman's at and, and see what it is Absolutely. and where you need to go from there. And she did say that one approach is to say to start with, yes, we'll, we'll, we can do that. Now let's have the conversation. Yeah. And both she and Maria made the point that if you, if you do that, if you offer the support in a positive way, then women will very often end up actually having a vaginal birth. And I get that. And, you know, when we did this broadcast live a couple of times ago, one of the people on the panel was saying in the context of continuity of carer um, and having an open dialogue and relationship with a caregiver, all of those concerns and stuff can be explored throughout that process. My issue with the letter is my issue with any policy that is blanketly applied. Anything that is seeking to apply one standard to everyone is missing the point when it comes to personalised individual kind of care and support, isn't it? Yeah. So I would have issues with the letter too. I do think there is more to be said about the whole idea of requesting a caesarean section. I mean, I've heard Dennis Walsh raise the issue of uh, economics. You know, we, we actually do live in a, a situation where care is rationed. You know, we, we've got a free at the point of delivery NHS service, but that care has to be rationed because there isn't the resources to do everything that we'd ideally like to do. Yeah. Now, interestingly, there was a bit that I, I couldn't include from Susan's interview because I had to um, fit it into the available time. But she said she sees the drive for this um, no quibble request cesarean being driven by um, the, the privileged classes and being taken out on the underprivileged or, or less um, economically powerful classes and it, it's a an unfair system ah, what a good what a good point uh, you know maybe maybe those that can afford to pay and request should be allowed to anyway go on let's hear her yeah let's and i would just like to thank Catherine williams for introducing me to dr susan Bewley. here she is I'm Susan Bewley, a professor of women's health at King's College London, 
and um, I was an obstetrician for nearly 30 years. Hi Susan, thank you so much for um, agreeing to be on Sprogcast. It's a rare occasion where we feel like we want to get different perspectives on a subject and we're talking today about uh, maternal request for caesarean um, and I'd just like to ask you what your view of that is and what your experience is. Thank you. It's a very interesting and um, knotty uh, question. Certainly when I uh, was a medical student and training in uh, the 1970s and early 80s, it wasn't um, something we came across very often. Women weren't asking for cesareans. I think women are uh, rightly a bit anxious about birth and rightly a bit anxious about cesarean. And in fact, both are pretty safe nowadays. But certainly over the years, um, more women have come asking for cesareans for various reasons. Maybe they've had a cesarean before or a bad birth experience. Um, Maybe something's happened in their family. Um, Maybe we've got a baby that's uh, very weak. Maybe they've got some psychological trauma or previous um, sexual abuse or something. And occasionally people come saying, I want a cesarean and there appears to be no reason or there appears now to be a sense that it's so safe, it's a perfectly reasonable option, just like off a menu of choices. So I've certainly seen a lot of women and had many, many discussions about cesareans uh, over over my professional lifetime. Right. So you've mentioned loads of reasons there why women might want to do this, varying yeah. from sort of just feel like it would be the easier option um, yeah. to sort of psychological trauma and abuse cases and yeah. things like that. How would you support yeah. women in, in those more extreme cases? Well, I think one mustn't ever take anything as a doctor. We, we're in a professional trusting doctor-patient relationship and one mustn't ever take anything simply for granted. Um, Someone might appear very cool on the surface and be very distressed underneath. Uh, Somebody might be presenting, uh, I I want X, but if the reason is something else for which Y would be better, then it is my professional job to talk that through. So I think the very most important thing is to start where the woman is um, tr- create a rapport and try and find something out about her her concerns, her values, her situation. You know, every single case is individual, so I can't just say, I do this like that. But if I understand where the request is coming from, what the women's um, uh, fears or uh, values are, if somebody says, I don't see the difference between someone saying, I would like a cesarean and I would like to be delivered eight weeks early. Um, both of them are interruptions of the pregnancy rather than just leaving well alone. And as a doctor, I feel one should leave physiology and nature alone unless there's a problem. My job as a doctor is to help when there's a a risk or a danger or an illness and to, first of all, do no harm. So my judgment is uh, I like to do things if they've got a medical indication. So if somebody comes saying, I want X, and I wouldn't have advised that in the normal state of things, I need to have a a conversation. And so I think we start with the conversation where the woman is. um, And then from that, the individual plan might be, shall we get another opinion? Shall we induce? Shall we do a cesarean? What day shall we do it on? Um, And how shall we have a plan that if you're very phobic about labor, 
and you go into premature labour, what are we going to do in that situation? So we, we have to have quite a complicated conversation with a complicated plan. Yes. So it's very much about building that supportive relationship. Yes. Um, and not so much about a blanket policy of, no, we don't do that. If you start with, no, we don't do that, it doesn't sound as though you're someone I'm having a conversation between two people with mutual respect, with different um, things they're bringing to the conversation. I'm bringing... Uh, medical knowledge and skills and you are bringing yourself your values your privacy your intimacy um, and uh, you know you don't start a conversation with no you know that that's the kind of um, almost sounds exactly like what I've heard from the people who are are advocating for women to be able to request a cesarean without even sort of being needing to explain why they want it I think that that's a different thing um, because you're now asking something of me and you're not giving me... I'm not saying a doctor should have the option of saying absolutely no, but to say I'm asking you to... I'm asking or demanding or expecting of you to do what I want, uh, no questions asked, no explanation. And I am um, you know, a very traditional doctor. I believe in the right to be left alone and that means uh, respecting women's choices um, uh, for place of birth, uh, for saying no, even in the most extreme circumstances, because otherwise it's an assault by a doctor to touch a patient. But on the other hand, asking me to do something which I know harms, um, surgery has harms, and if I was asked to do a cesarean, I'd have to weigh up that and you know have have a conversation about that, and I might say, well, it's more harmful. Uh, what about if you're very frightened of this big baby what about an earlier delivery or what about um, a cesarean in labor or what about a cesarean at uh, 39 weeks we'd we'd have a negotiation around that but if you say as patients have said to me I want the baby out now six eight weeks early I mean I have to say at some point there is a point where it becomes unprofessional for me to harm you and harm a baby Um, without some, some more reasons and more support, some more information. And, for example, when people are asking to have premature babies, um, uh, I often say, would they meet someone to talk about their psychological state? Would they meet a pediatrician to talk about the risks of the baby? Um, and, you know, it is, it, I, my, my um, reluctance, rather than my absolute no, uh, I think is a measure of uh, my professionalism that I bring to the conversation. So I don't think, so I, I think that the idea that um, I am, uh, um, you know, it is disrespectful for me to question you, I think that's, that's, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me with my years of experience as a doctor. It, it, it is disrespectful for me not to listen to your views, but it's not disrespectful of me not to try and understand them because you're asking me as a third party to do something to you which has inevitable harms, and I must, you know, I'm, I'm held to account by a regulator for that. Um, so it's, I, I accept that there's a power difference in this relationship, um, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a simple thing. That power difference is really interesting, isn't it? Because from an ethical point of view, it seems like you, the doctor, have the right to explore this with the woman making the request. I don't think that saying I'm reluctant to do a cesarean on request 
unless you have a psychological reason means I think you're you've got a psychological problem or you're mad or something like that. And I think that's a, a difficult dynamic a, an inexperienced um, doctor might get into. I do think it's okay to say there's a difference between uh, an indication for a cesarean um, or not. And the indication might be fear. It might be unresolved fear having gone through a process which includes you know, meeting a midwife, talking to a psychologist or whatever. I think people saying, how dare you ask me for my reason? It is my right. Um, I think these are really difficult because that hits right to the fundamental uh, professional ethics and legality. And in other parts of medicine, there isn't a legal right to have an operation without an indication or without going through a process. Um, there may be places where healthy tissue uh, is removed in uh, transgender or cosmetic surgery. But if somebody says, I want an amputation, you know, a doctor cannot do it uh, for, a health, you know, for a healthy leg. So, so I, and, and certainly there have been disputes at the end of life about insisting on treatments that doctors think are futile. If you come to me for something, um, I don't see that it's just like shopping um, so I think the the, the doctor-patient relationship isn't 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 about um, you know I want um, it's about you know I'm here to serve you and your best interests and that's quite complicated or rather I think that's that's a, a very consumerist rather than a uh, deeply ethical approach to the relationship it is isn't it and um as a, an antenatal teacher myself i do get this impression that there's there's almost a, an expectation of you use the phrase a menu of choices mm. and and yeah that that we as um doing antenatal preparation should be saying this is your menu and these are the things on it but we tend to get um, quite bad press if we then say but there are some disadvantages to some of these things like having um, a cesarean is surgery exactly as you've said and mm. isn't isn't just a harmless option. No it's a, it's major surgery and complications may be rare but I have seen women die in childbirth over the years and it may only be one in two in ten thousand in London in the 2000s but, um, you know, nearly one in 100 women go to intensive care and um, surgery is related to bleeding and infection, let alone complications in other pregnancies. It is not benign. It is entirely true that uh, vaginal birth has its uh, traumas, damages, injuries um, and, uh, you know, mental impacts. Um, and I think that the, the fact that birth has a, an association with fear and death, biologically, primordially, in culture, uh, is something that we um, have to deal with. And, you know, it's fantastic that we've got incredible pain relief, but it may then make pain more unbearable than when we had a lot of cultural support for it. Um, it's fantastic that we can do cesareans. Women do not die of obstructed labor, um, but uh, they may be incredibly sick and nearly die of a placenta preview and the placenta is embedded into the scar and they end up with a hysterectomy and, you know, on intensive care in another pregnancy. So, of course, it's only one person with one life and 
most likely, it doesn't matter what you do, things will go well either way. Um, but it's when things don't go well that you look back and say, did we actually, were we really properly prepared for that? And are there, are there routes between the rocks and the hard places? I've certainly seen women expecting a cesarean at 39 weeks and going into premature labor and then you know, everyone rushing around in a panic and the baby almost half in, half out. So we've, we've got to be a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more uh, prepared. And I think um, fear clouds the thinking. And so you just say, I want this, I've got that plan, now I'm in control. And one of the things, well, it wasn't a very nice conversation, one of the conversations I would often have with patients, I was saying, oh, um, you know, do you think there's some control issues because people wanted a baby on this day, in this way, in this setting? And, um, and actually, if, once you start saying, well, you know, once you've had a child, you've lost control for the next 20 years, there's sort of, ah, sort of giggle of recognition. And actually, I think it's, for me, I wonder sometimes, not everyone, it's each woman, as I said, you have a conversation with, but sometimes it's actually what's going to happen afterwards. Am I going to be, am I going to be a good mother? How am I going to be a good mother? How is my whole life and identity going to change? And, and I think there's a lot of, there is so much uh, name, shame, fear, blame uh, around uh, women's reproduction. I've only women we're left alone. Whatever we do is wrong if we mother in this way or that way, if we birth in this way or that way, if we walk down the street in these clothes or those clothes. And actually, I think the emotional intensity of the debate is, uh, is horrendous and you know, I think it was, was it Winnicott who said, we only need to be good enough? Yeah, and, it was. And actually, I think exploring the the fears that are contained within this discussion of this last moment of pregnancy, but the first moment of motherhood, it's still a very, very important cultural right. And we've invented all sorts of new little um, things around it, fathers cutting cords, invented words like natural cesarean what a nonsense that is in terms of the words uh, and maybe we don't have enough cultural support and enough sisters and mothers and the old gossips to help us through the transition which is not merely the biological birth that's so interesting what i'm hearing is kind of distilling this question about um, th this kind of presenting question of uh, can I have a cesarean please is actually being the distillation of all this fear about the entire social transition. Or it might not be, but until until I ask, oh, why do you ask that, what do you want and, and so forth. And, and for some women, the fear is so great um, and I can see that they're uh, very distressed and of course the distress might be you're not respecting me, how dare you, or it might be I can't begin to open that up. Um, and, you know, certainly one approach for some women is to say, look, you know, we'll do, I'll do what you want at the end of the day, but let me, let, let's get there first. And then maybe having a problem. I mean, I've, I have a colleague, actually a doctor, who was so fearful of birth, um, she would have had an abortion had she not known she could have a cesarean. Now, that is extreme and if someone's not even going to get pregnant and because of their fear, then I think, well, hopefully they have the conversation beforehand yeah. and have a plan. But even when she gets pregnant, with the promise of a cesarean at 39 weeks, at least because of the baby's lungs, um, what happens if she, if she goes into labor at seven and a half months? Yeah. 
you know, and they suddenly, oh my goodness, I'm very surprised. That is for the premature baby whose lungs are even more um, uh, fragile, you know, and we know that labor is itself enlivening. It gets the baby ready for birth. It clears the lungs of fluid, for example. Um, should she labor a bit and have a cesarean? Is the fear is the fear about having her legs open? Is the fear about a baby ripping her apart? Well, a premature one is very small and won't. So she still has to have a conversation. So, so the problem is you have to be prepared for complications and for life not going your way. And you cannot plan and control A, pregnancy, B, birth, C, motherhood, D, life. Mm. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> sadly. Um, mm. So we're, we're there to help and support, not to be unkind and make people feel ashamed of you know, what has happened to them. Um, or what does happen to them. And that's not to say that some terrible things don't happen in labor, but uh, I think modern women may be less prepared for things than when they were surrounded by many more people who'd been experiencing it, who were younger and fitter, who had larger families. Yeah, and more experience of childbirth happening around them, almost. Hmm. And yet we have, um, in, in all of, within all of this, um, we have trusts that are writing to women at when they book in to say we don't grant maternal requests for cesarean do we well, yes we do well, well i think that's just a little bizarre um it sounds a little it sounds as though it's a little quirky and to, it'll be to do with individuals and non-functioning multidisciplinary teams i think you might have a policy but you don't have to there's all sorts of policies we don't write to people beforehand yeah i thought it was pretty bizarre <laughs> that it, it reeks of a an unresolved dispute within the staff being taken out on the general public so I, it doesn't sound right now it may be right that we do not automatically do it and, yeah but it should be you know welcome here Tell us about your values and concerns, and we have a system for dealing with you if, if you have, uh, you know, if you have particular needs, and that, who knows what the needs are? You might need to avoid a hospital because of some terrible experience and want a home birth against the usual night criteria, and you might need a planned cesarean because of being like the previous patient I told you about, who had tremendous fears about it, that you know, such that she was needing psychiatric and pediatric help too. But actually, we're here to address your needs, and we have a pathway. I mean, we might say, you know, tell us about this, or we always want to offer that. There are randomized trials from Scandinavia, because the Scandinavians seem to be ahead of us in, in being sensible, um, where if someone is frightened of labor, which, why shouldn't she be? Um, she has a relationship with a midwife, a one midwife, uh, and they have a tour of the birth unit and uh, has a session of, um, uh, with a psychologist. And half of the women, their fears are reduced enough to say, yes, I think I can face it. And they get yeah. a higher vagina delivery rate. It is unethical not to offer people um, things that may help them. Yeah. And that is actually positively hostile to, to send a letter beforehand. Thank you, Susan. I've, I've loved talking to you. That's been brilliant. Well, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you as well because you've been a very good listener. So that's why I was affirming you. I wasn't just making this up for a bit. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's, that's my job, listening to people. So. Yeah. Okay, then. Wonderful. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I enjoyed that.
I loved listening to her. I say this after most interviews, don't I? But that one particularly. I mean, 30 years an obstetrician, did she say? And, and a professor, you know, she's going to have a quality measured, reflected upon position, isn't she? Yeah. Karen! Mark. What has, what has inspired you this month? I have um, read three brilliant books. Oh, tell me. So I read um, Pinch and Martin's new one, A Midwife's Story. Oh, you know, I flipped through it. I haven't read it yet because I got it. I, I was particularly interested because a friend of mine, Mia Scotland, is particularly into the Amish and birth. Oh, yeah. So she's going to love this book, isn't she? Oh, yeah, she will. She absolutely will. It was fascinating. So I really enjoyed reading that. It was nice. Um, Natalie Meddings really kindly sent me a copy of How to Have a Baby. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't like the title much. No, and it's a big fat book. And it's really funny because in her intro, she says, oh, you should carry this around in your bag and make notes in it. It's like a brick. Is it? Natalie, no one's going to carry this around in their bag. But wouldn't it? it I think it would be really good as like a, a loose leaf binder and you could take bits out and you could go to the midwife and say, well, look at this and I want you to tell me, explain this to me a bit more. And you, yeah. you could really use it as a, a useful, useful reference tool. Good, good. Good content. I thought almost all of the content was good and evidenced and it would be really good for birth planning. Yeah. It's good for doing better, that bit of research. Better than the Positive Birth Book by Millie Hill? Ooh, different. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... Which one? Which one would you buy? Which one would I buy? I'm not having a baby. <laughs> come on, if you were. Which one would on. I... The question is, which one would I give my sister, isn't it? Which one would you recommend? Yes. Um, ooh, you can only recommend one. I'm really torn. I can't choose. I think it would be how to have a baby. Is it that good? They're both really good. I've, I'm, I'm telling you, it would be. I don't know. I can't. <sighs> the other book I liked was a novel called Eleven Hours, and um, by Pamela Ahrens, and it's. Um, a really short novel and it's set over the course of a birth but during that time it tells two women's stories and it's it's a really nice read if you want a bit of fiction so those are my three things that have inspired me how about you wow. i've only got one thing yeah i'm reading the book the body keeps the score right mind brain and body in the transformation of trauma and it's by a psychiatrist called bessel van De Kolk. Uh, I'm reading it because of the work I'm doing with Mia Scotland and um, Alex Heath around the three-step rewind technique. And it's kind of like a, an evolving history of how trauma has been treated. And I'm, I'm finding it particularly inspiring in terms of how it reviews the brain uh, study, you know, the study of the brain and how the study of the brain has evolved. And how we can be a little bit more confident that we understand how parts of the brain kind of work. But but it also I love the fact that these guy this guy's been working in the field for 30 years, and there is so much we don't know about trauma. And uh, and I find that quite inspiring in, in many ways. Because you know, I, I find that when you know people start talking about trauma, particularly in the context of, of birth. You get a lot of really confident statements about what's going on and how to treat it and what you shouldn't do and what you should do. Truth of the matter is, we, we know perilously little. 
the evidence in the context of, of birth is is scant, uh, and the book is particularly inspiring from that point of view and many others. Points in the direction of things that seem to work when it comes to trauma. It's a good book, worth a read, particularly worth a read for those of you that are interested uh, in trauma. Cool. Well, those are both uh, that on our website. When I say both, I mean my three and Mark's one. Um, on our Facebook page, you mean? Yes, I do. And I, I think that's all we've got time for today. Such an interesting subject. So let us let us know. Get please come back to us on this one because we'd love to bring in some of that discussion in our next episode on the related subject of birth trauma. Hopefully, yeah. um, so get yourselves to Facebook and Twitter. That's Facebook dot com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, why not leave us a review? It does make a difference. Thanks for listening. And that's goodbye from me. And from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.